There we go. Good morning, church. Obviously, I am not Kyle Dingus this morning. Obviously, just to sort that one out before we get going here. Um, again, a welcome to any visitors who are with us today. You are welcome here, and you have a place here at 4th Avenue. Uh, if you're not familiar with who I am, my name is Nicholas Wynn. I am one of the student ministers here at 4th Avenue, working alongside Nikki Fox. I've been married to my wonderful wife, Melissa, since December. Um, and from both of us, we just want to say thank you to all of you who've made us feel so welcome here at 4th in just a few months we've been here. As well, uh, thank you to both my family and Melissa's family for being here and joining us today as well. Um, but I look around this room and I see a lot of people I haven't gotten the chance to meet yet. So I would like to put my email on the screen, actually. I would like to put out an open invitation because Melissa and I want to be very intentional about getting to know this church body and church family. So if anyone is willing to take me up on this offer, I'd love for anyone to reach out for coffee, for lunch, for whatever it might be, just so... I can get to know you, your story, and ultimately why you're here at 4th Avenue. Um, but ultimately, as again, as I said, I, while I am a student minister, my wife and I hope to be here for a long time and hope to raise a family. Just don't give the idea of grandkids to my parents or my in-laws just yet. <laughs> but again, it is a blessing to be here today. So we've been going through a series called Church on Fire looking at the early church in Acts and what that means for us. And we'll be continuing in that series today. So let's pray. Lord, this time is yours. If I say anything that is not of your will, let it be forgotten. We gather as a church family coming from a multitude of situations. And I pray that you meet us where we are, God. I pray that we lean on each other and that we lean on you, Lord, as we are the body of Christ. In this time, let us open our hearts for what you have for us. And I pray for all of us for humility so that you may lift us up, Lord. I pray for this congregation. May we pursue you in all things and never forsake the gospel for the things of this world. Amen. Stories are what make life meaningful. When we catch up with friends and family at holidays or other times of the year, we spend a lot of time sharing stories as a way of catching each other up on what's been happening in our lives. Stories have the power to evoke a multitude of emotions within us. We think about the libraries in our community full of stories and books that can capture our attention for hours. We'll pay money to go to movie theaters to see stories unfold before our eyes. Stories have a way of bringing us together. For many of us here who were here in 2010, we remember the stories of the flood, the stories of unimaginable loss, heartbreak. But we also remember the stories of faith, the stories that gave us hope, people being rescued unimaginable generosity offered, stories that gave us hope to move forward and trust that there would be a better day to come. By sharing our stories, we share life together. If you think about it, church is a lot of storytelling. We share the stories of God and his creation in the Bible. We look at how God plays out in our present time and how he'll move into the future. 
Just recently, I've been watching The Chosen for the first time. I just finished season one a few weeks ago, and I was always wondering what captured the attention of The Chosen for so many people. What has made The Chosen so attractive for Christians and non-Christians alike? I believe it's the way they simply tell a story. Because there's been many ways the Gospels have been betrayed, but The Chosen tells a unique perspective and ultimately tells a different kind of story. Stories connect with people in a way nothing else can. And the reason I talk about stories is because I want to look at how Paul tells a story. His own life story, to be specific. So it'll be in Acts 21 today if you want to open your Bibles there, but I just want to set the scene for you as we begin. And so at this point in Acts, Paul has arrived in Jerusalem. And he began to take part in the days of purification as was Jewish law. But it's important to know that on his way to Jerusalem, many people told Paul that he would likely die if he came to the city. And yet he was firm in his conviction that this is where God was telling him to go. Paul arrives, and as we see in verse 27, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized them, shouting, fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people our law in this place. And so they continue, if you want to go to the next slide, they continue in verse 30, and the whole city was aroused. They drag him from the temple and the gates are shut. And he at once, if you go to verse 32, he at once took some officers, the commander did, and soldiers and ran to the crowd. And Paul is ultimately saved here by Roman commanders. And yet what we see here is that justice is not dispensed to the Jews who incited this crowd Yet Paul is the one arrested and began to be taken to the barracks. Because here we see the Romans caring more about calming the crowd than actually dispensing real justice. Similarly to how we see the trial of Jesus play out. The desires of the crowd are prioritized over that of the innocence of Jesus. But we see here Paul take a second. In verse 39, Paul asks the commander to allow him to speak as he's being taken to the barracks. Paul sees in this moment an opportunity, an opportunity to share the gospel. So let's go to Acts 22, verse 1. He says, Paul says to the crowd, brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. And I want to remember that last word, defense. We'll come back to that. But he says to the crowd, brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. The crowd became quiet and begins to listen. Because while Paul had not been technically accused of anything by the governing leaders of the time, he knew the Jewish crowd had a distorted view of what his mission was. And Paul saw the opportunity to correct them, to show them the truth about why he was there and what he believed to be the movement of God on his life. So we go to verse 2, if you go to the next slide. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. It notes earlier, just a few verses earlier, that they, the crowd had already quieted down to listen. But at this moment, the crowd quiets down to the point where you could probably hear a pin drop. The reason Paul does this is to close the gap between him and the crowd. To show these people that they had more in common than they realized. In just a few words, Paul had the power to control the attention of the crowd. A few years ago, I actually became a dog owner. Any dog owners in here? 
a few people surely have dogs. You'll probably understand this, but a few years ago, I became a dog owner by way of my now wife and girlfriend, Melissa. She got a dog from one of her professors. But as you guys know, if you have a dog, it's really easy to capture their attention with the right things. If I hold up Bella's dinner bowl, Bella's her dog, if I hold up her soccer ball that she loves so much or something else that she really wants, I have her attention. She could have been doing anything else in that moment, yet if I hold up her ball, I have her attention. Where the ball goes, she goes. With something so simple, I held the attention of our dog. And in the same way, Paul holds the attention of the Jews at this moment. And now having the crowd's attention to such an extent, he then shares his life story. A story many of us are familiar with. Paul being blinded on the road to Damascus being sent to Ananias to re receive his sight back and turning from his ways and ultimately pursuing the way of Jesus and the gospel. So we'll pick back up verse in 17 later in Acts 22 and it says this, when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking. Quick, he said to me, leave Jerusalem immediately because they will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these men know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And then we go to verse 22. And we see the reaction of the crowd. And again, once again, only after a few moments of being quiet, they're again in an uproar. Because for the Jewish people, they believed that if the Messiah were to come and when the Messiah was to come, God's chosen people, the Jews, would be the ones to receive the salvation, the message of hope and restoration that Paul was offering. Yet to them, they were hearing from this so-called prophet, this so-called apostle Paul, that their God that they believed in and followed for generations was telling this very man to go not to them, God's people, but go to the Gentiles, the very people they were told not to associate with, not to welcome into the temple. And yet, you have to wonder, would Paul have known how the crowd would have reacted? Because Paul was raised a Pharisee. Paul was raised among these people. Paul knew the rationale behind what they thought and believed. And even if he did know, I choose to believe that Paul spoke and shared his story in the hope that the Spirit of God would convict even one person in the crowd. That maybe even one person might be moved what God has said through Paul. Because Paul put his trust in God's ability to speak, not his own effort. And so just to kind of wrap the rest of the story up in a bigger picture, he is then sent and arrested and flogged. He is sent to Caesarea and put before Felix. And he is there for two years speaking with Felix about what he believes and says. Uh, Felix would then be replaced by a guy named Festus. Festus was sent of the King Agrippa, specifically Herod Agrippa III. And if you want to connect the dots with an earlier point in the Gospels, the grand, he is the grandson of the King Herod who tried to have Jesus killed as a baby. The Bible is more connected than we realize sometimes. And so what we see Herod Agrippa, Paul again shares his story with Herod Agrippa, the same message he shares with the crowd. But Herod Agrippa believes Paul is out of his mind. For if anyone were to hear the story of Paul, their rationale is that only by the direct intervention of God could these things have happened in Paul's life. 
But to the common person or even to a king, they would not believe such a thing. But isn't it interesting? Between a common group of common folk and a ruler, Paul shares the same message. Because he believes in the power of his life story. He believes in the message that God has put on his heart. Paul very well could have defended himself in a way that gained his innocence. Because even Herod Agrippa the king knew that Paul was innocent. Yet Paul had then appealed to Caesar to go further. Because at a certain point, Paul put aside his desire to be innocent, to be free, to continue going to churches as he had done. He ultimately put forward the priority of spreading the gospel in the situation he was in, despite however inconvenient it may have been. Paul knew his story had meaning and power, his life story, even before a king. But I don't imagine any of us will find ourselves in Paul's shoes at a point in our life. I don't believe we'll find ourselves before a crowd that is trying to kill us or defending ourselves before a king. But I want to ask just one question. Are we willing, as a church body, to share our story when the opportunity arises, whether convenient or not? For Paul was given an opportunity at probably the most inconvenient time to share the gospel. Yet he trusted God and leaned into that time. How many of us are willing to share our story when the opportunity arises? But again, I want to go back to the very first word, the last word that Paul says in Acts 22, verse 1. He says, listen now to my defense. And even before King Herod Agrippa III, he says, listen now to my defense. And when we think about evangelism, we think about sharing the gospel, and the word defense comes into play. We're put into the context of what is called apologetics. And if you're not familiar with apologetics, it's simply defending the gospel by means of arguments and similar discourse. We see it in places like the Ark Experience up north, if you've ever been there. You see it in books like Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ, or the book I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. There are people in our world who have made it their life's goal to defend the gospel and for good measure. But I believe we are all called to defend the gospel. For if any person were to walk in this church and say the gospel isn't good news, we would want to correct them and show them that what we believe is good news. We are all called to share the gospel. For if Paul believed his life story was valuable to share before a king, surely we can be called to share our story with the people in our community. Because God can use any person's testimony to bring people to faith. Everyone has a story of significance. Everyone has a story worth sharing. And we are required to share that. Because it is good news. And the good news is not only that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. The good news is that also we eat all as a church body have been redeemed. And by the grace of God, we have been given new life. That is good news, church. That is good news worth sharing. That is a story worth sharing. So why is our story worth sharing? Why is it the most meaningful way for us to advance the gospel? Because again, I say stories have significance. Stories have a way of bringing people together. For when we share our story, when we share what God has done in our life, we connect with people in a deeper way. For when we think about the context we live in of Franklin, Tennessee, 
I believe our stories have the power to bring people to Christ. Because I look around this room and I see hundreds of people. Hundreds of people with different stories each. For if we were to go around this room and have every person share their story, no two stories would be exactly the same, despite the similarities. And because of this wide spectrum of stories, it allows us the opportunity to relate with a wide variety of people in our community. That is a blessing that we've been given as a church body. Because when we share our stories, we have a different way of connecting with people. Because stories have a way of connecting to people's hearts. And when we connect to people's hearts, then they start to hear us out in a different way. But I recognize that we're human. We have hesitations, we have anxieties, we have fears. We have things that hold us back from sharing our own stories. The greatest lie we can tell ourselves is this. Just because significant things haven't happened in your life, it means that God isn't doing significant things in your life. The truth is, church, the truth that I want you to hear today is that God is moving in your life regardless of what has happened in your life. Far too often we compare stories. We believe that if just because our story hasn't played out like someone else's story, then our story doesn't have value. Our story doesn't have significance. God is doing things in each and every one of your lives. And it takes our choice to pay attention and see what he's doing. And again, I say the reason why stories are worth sharing is because they convict people in a way that statistics and arguments do not. Arguments may win people over, but they won't win their hearts. Stories change people's hearts. And I think about my own story. Uh, Melissa and I shared our story with our Young Married Life Group here at 4th Avenue just a few weeks ago. And when you share your life story enough times, you begin to think the same things about what God has done in your life. You share again and again what has happened in your life, and you think the same things again and again what God has done. But after we shared, we have some people reflect and name things in our life. And the beauty of it was that I heard things about my life that I could not name in myself. There is a beauty of hearing other people speak truth about what God was doing in my life that I couldn't name in myself. Because I believe that's the first thing we have to do. When we think about sharing our stories, we have to first know what God has done in our life. And that may take having others name what God is doing in our life. I remember the first time I ever did spiritual direction. And if you aren't familiar with spiritual direction, it's, it could be hard to kind of summarize, bring to a, a definition, but I would just describe it as someone else facilitating a space for myself or any person in here, a space for us to deepen our relationship with God. And the first time I did this was fall 2019. I was coming out of one of the hardest seasons of my life. Just earlier that spring, my last semester of college, I lost two friends in three months. I was coming out of one of the hardest seasons of my life. And at that point, having graduated college, having supposedly gone through the best years of my life, I didn't know where God was. I still had a faith, and yet I struggled to look around and see where God was. And in that moment, my spiritual director offered me an exercise. What he had me do was simply reflect on a memory earlier in my life. A really hard memory that I struggled to see God in. And he offered me the space to find God in that space from many years ago. And I was able to do that. 
And by finding God in the past, I was able to trust God that he was with me in the present. Church, this is why we have community. But also, I recognize that there are people in this church, when I talk about sharing your story, there are difficult things that come to mind. I can't imagine what some of you may have gone through in your life. And to begin sharing your story maybe requires taking steps to process your story first. Going to a counselor, going to a therapist, someone who can help you understand what you've gone through and maybe even help you find God in that. Finding God in the storms of life. But for, the, for others, it may be as simple as finding a mentor, sharing your story with them, and having them point out where God is in your life. Because that's the beauty of communities, that we don't have to figure this out on our own. We are called to share our stories, but we have help. We look around this room, we see people who can help us see God where is in our story, and then go share that with the world. We all have a story to share. Because stories connect with people in a way that nothing else does. I want to close with a story today, funny enough. It was a church in Munich that I saw him. A balding, heavyset man in a gray overcoat. A brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken. Moving along the rows of wooden chairs to, be, to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I'd come from Holland to defeat Germany with the, with, the, with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land. And I gave them my favorite mental picture, maybe because the sea is never far away from a Hollander's mind. For I told them I like to think that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said to them, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence, and in silence left the room. And that's when I saw him. Working his way forward against the others, one moment I saw the overcoat and his brown hat, the next a blue uniform, a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush, with a rush, the huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I have been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man coming forward had been a guard at the concentration camp where we were sent. Now he stood in front of me, he thrust out his hand and said, a fine message for all mine. How good it is to know that as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so freely of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember me, one prisoner among hundreds of thousands of women? But I remembered him, the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he said to me. I was a guard in there. So no, he did not remember me. 
But since that time he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I have done. But do you forgive me for all mine? And he stuck out his hand. Will you forgive me? And I stood there, I whose sins had every day to be forgiven, but could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have come many seconds that he stood there, hand held out. But it seemed like hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. For I had to do it, I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your own trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives no matter what the physical scars. But those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with a coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion, I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, and sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. I was reading one time in an article about how to teach virtues, like compassion, forgiveness, and love. And what the article said is that the most captivating way to teach virtues is not to define them and explain why they're important, but to simply share stories of how they play out. Because we hear this story of Corey Ten Boom, author of The Hiding Place, and all of us believe that we ought to forgive if Corey Boone can forgive the very guard that tortured her in a concentration camp. Stories have the power to change lives. We have a story worth sharing. All of us have a story worth sharing. I'll invite the praise team to start coming up as well. But as we close, remember this. We all have a story worth sharing. God is at work in this church, in the lives in each and every person in here. And I pray that as we go this week, we will share our stories. Because stories connect with people in a way nothing else can. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for a time to get away from the stresses of life. But God, we thank you for the blessing of this church family. God, I pray as we go today, let us be bold in sharing our stories. But God, I pray for any person in here who, who you put on their heart 
to write a new chapter in their story, whether one of baptism, forgiveness, or reconciliation. God, you're not done writing our story. And I pray that we lean into what you have for us in this time and the time moving forward. In your name we pray.